The Rebrand Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. Welcome to the Rebrand Podcast, and I Hear Everything production. This podcast tells the stories of world-changing marketing campaigns as told by the people who build them. In each episode, you'll hear a brilliant marketer talk through the strategy, framework, and tactics used to elevate their brands to new heights. Ready to hear untold stories behind the brands you love? Then sit back, relax, and get ready for the Rebrand Here's the host of the Rebrand Podcast, the CEO of the Harkey Group, Scott Harkey. All right, welcome to the Rebrand Podcast, where, as you know, we tell untold stories of world-changing brand campaigns as told by the marketers who build them. I'm the host and founder of the Harkey Group, Scott Harkey, and today we're going to hear about underlying factors that drive consumer purchasing decisions. Delving into the psychological, social, and emotional aspect that shape our buying behaviors, I have a dope guest today who I've been sort of excited about for weeks to have him on because he comes from one of the best agencies in the world. We have Marcus Collins. He's got his book coming out. He's the former chief strategy officer at Wyden Kennedy. New York, which of course was founded in 1995. Wyden Kennedy is a full-service creative agency with standalone media planning, buying, social design. Look, guys, you know who Wyden is. They are the cream of the crop in terms of agencies. They started with Nike. If you talk to every one of the creatives at my agency over the last 15 years, Wyden is who we all have crushes on because they do insane work and they do some of the best creative work in the world. So we're going to have Marcus on. So who knows where this goes, but I know he's excited. He's got his book coming out, so we'll talk about that. Of course, you know, Wyden is known for creative that shifts culture, right? I've seen a million of their presentations, and they're all freaking awesome. But today, Marcus and I are going to dive into the power behind what we buy. All right, here's my conversation with Marcus Collins, Chief Strategy Officer, Marketing Professor, Author, Wyden Kennedy, New York. He's all over the place. He comes out of Michigan right now. Let's get him on. Let's dive right into it. What's going on, man? Thanks for having us on. Oh, man. Thanks for being with me. This is great. I'm so stoked to be in the building. Let's do it. Okay. Let's talk about your book and your background a little bit first. Let's get that out of the way. So I want to hear about your book coming out. And then I'd love to hear you rose through the you know creative ranks at one of the biggest creative powerhouse shops in the world. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Maybe we'll start there. And then I'd love to hear about what your book's all about. Yeah. So actually, I'm not from the advertising world originally. I studied engineering undergrad because I thought I wanted to be a materials engineer, but I realized I didn't want to be a material engineer, much to my parents' chagrin. I went into the music industry after undergrad, wrote love songs for a living. I wanted to be babyface, right, with a mix of Pharrell. That didn't work out so well, so I went back to school to get my MBA, and that's when I got introduced to the world of marketing communication. Did partner marketing at Apple, working in iTunes, managing our relationship with Nike Sports Music. After that, I ended up meeting Matthew Knowles, who has a daughter named Beyonce, and he goes, wait a minute, you were an engineer, started a music company, you have an MBA, you worked at iTunes, and you're black, 
dude, who are you? Like, you don't <laughs> exist. You're not real. It's like, no, I'm real. And he says, yo, you should run digital strategy for Beyonce. And I go, yep, I should totally do that. So I ran digital strategy for Beyonce during the I Am Sasha Fierce years. And then I introduced to advertising. Holy shit. Was this Beyonce, like, as Beyonce, not Destiny's Child, or was it Beyonce? This is Beyonce. So she was two albums out. Actually, no, this is her third album out from, from Destiny's Child. And the cool part about that, that point of her trajectory is that she wasn't quite yet Queen B. She was ascending <laughs> to that. Yeah. And it was just awesome to have a front row seat to see that take place. And in some ways kind of add to the edifice that is Beyonce, lay one small brick to that edifice. But I introduced to advertising through social media. I worked for a, a pure play social media agency called Big Fuel that was running all of General Motors social media at, at the time. And I learned about social. Like I learned, like it's sort of like boot camp for social in a lot of ways. And while I was there, I met Steve Stout, who's advertising giant, but had historically been a record label executive that put those two worlds together. And I came over to translation to build their social practice and lateralize it across all of their clients. And that's really where I cut my teeth. That was like the biggest inflection point in my career. There, I launched the main American Music Festival for Budweiser, launched the Cliff Paul campaign for State Farm, moved the New Jersey Nets to Brooklyn to become the Brooklyn Nets. You know, all of these culturally impactful work that at the time was really creating the blueprint for how brands leverage culture as a vehicle to get people to adopt behavior. And that I would probably say was the introduction to how I think about culture today and why I wrote the book for the culture, right? It argues that there is no external force more influential to human behavior than culture, full stop. And when you hear that, you go, oh yeah, totally, that makes sense. But if you ask five people to define culture, you get 25 different answers. And that's a problem. No wonder Wyden went after you as hard as he probably did. <laughs> I, question on, like back then, okay, it sounds like when you're working with Beyonce and you, I mean, I'm sure hit it out of the park digitally and, you know, Beyonce became Beyonce. What was the platform at the time? Was there like a major insight to how she tapped into culture? And then obviously then your next gig, like boom, 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 boom. But was there something like it to me that that's where I was like kind of honing in, like what was learned there that like catapulted all this other stuff? And so Beyonce is and was a cultural producer. So the things that she was putting in the world was shaping culture. It became those exogenous shocks to the system that people would use to make meaning of the world. Right. Think about, you know, single ladies put a ring on it, hand movement like that became a gesture that was cultural production. Right. Put a ring on it like that became language that was cultural production, even that video, you know, by and large. But what I learned working with her was actually my biggest failure that I would think about as a practitioner. At the time, this is 2009, 2010. So the platforms we were using at the time were Facebook and Twitter. And one a part of my remit as her head of digital strategy was to move her offline fan club online. And at the time, I'm like, bet, I got all these tools, easy peasy. And we collectively put together this platform, you know, this temple on all these channels that were going to be her online fan club. And it was a party no one showed up to. I was like, yeah, what's, what's going on here? Why isn't this working? And the team ended up looking across the social web and we saw that there was a group of people that called themselves the Beehive. And this group of people had already had their set of behaviors, language, 
artifacts. They had, they were a community, an active, very active community that had came together because of their shared admiration and more importantly, congruent ideology with Beyonce. They weren't just fans of Beyonce. They subscribed to this idea of women's empowerment that Beyonce stood and stands for. And the team said, well, we need to cut bait on this thing that we were creating and just partner with them. And we ended up partnering with the Beehive to turn the Beehive into the official fan club for Beyonce. Oh, that's cool. That's smart. And what I learned is that like, you don't build community. You don't make community. You facilitate community by finding people who see the world the way you do. And then you help them come together, relieve points of friction so they might be able to achieve the things that they collectively want. And, you know, that was a failure for me. If you think about it in the context of what we were supposed to do at the time, it was a massive learning for me that I have taken with me from my time at Translation to my time at Donor to my time at Wine Kennedy, even as a practitioner, I mean, as a professor today at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan, is that this is all about community and what governs community? Culture. The system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and what people like us do. And the better we understand culture, the more likely we are to get people to adopt behavior. Holy shit. I mean, that punched me in the face, what you said. And I'm big on community. And I've talked to a ton of brand founders that understand this at such a deep level. And it's, I believe, one of the biggest reasons for some startup brand success. But what you said is you don't build community you facilitate community. That's insane. That makes a ton of sense. And that can be scary, I think, for a lot of corporate brands and they want to kind of have a little too much control. I mean, what do you call a community that you control? You call that a dictatorship. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, you can't control community. Like, that's just not how this works. That's not fun. Yeah. No. <laughs> that's not fun. And a lot of, you see this with a lot of colleges right now, too. I think part of the NIL system, too, is a lot of that where colleges want to control donors. They want to control this. They want to control that. And just, it doesn't work. The main question is a couple of things. I mean, one, I want to ask you about this fandom. I've seen a bunch of presentations around fandom from Wyden in the past. And I'd love maybe your insights you know, I know that McDonald's work was, I think, fantastic with Travis Scott. How the hell, like, do you just start and become culturally relevant? Is it music? Is it a moment? Is it a platform? How do you catch lightning in a bottle? Yeah, so let's talk about what culture is. And this is what the book uncovers, that culture is a system of conventions and expectations that govern who we are, demarcates who we are, govern what people like us do. And culture is made up of the beliefs that we hold, the artifacts that we don, the behaviors that are normative in the language that we use, right? So because of who we are, our identity, we see the world a certain way. We have a shared way of seeing the world. We show up in the world a certain way, artifacts, behaviors, language. And then we express who we are through a shared creative expression, cultural production, right? Whether it's music, literature, art, film, dance, and brands and branded products. So how do brands tap into culture? How do they become a part of culture? Well, brands do this when the cultural characteristics of the brand are aligned with the cultural characteristics of a given group of people. And those given groups of people, they use the brand to signal who they are in the world. And therefore, their consumption isn't because the razor's sharper, the battery lasts longer, the car goes faster, or the shampoo will get you laid. Like, it's not about the value propositions of the product. It's not about what the product is. It's about who the people are. And the brand's belief 
is aligned with the beliefs of these groups of people. And therefore, they consume as a cultural act, not because of its utility. Could you give me an example? Who's doing it well? Yeah. So take an episode you've done before, Liquid Death. Yeah. Right. This is water in the United States is like a commodity. Yeah. It is a commodity. And the liquid death thing blew my mind how they did it. It freaking blew my mind. Like the can looks crappy. Like the, it's just water in a can. It looks like a, you're carrying like a, a monster energy. Who wants to do that? And it blew up. It's insane. It's just water. Yeah. Right? It's just water. Two hydrogen and oxygen. So therapeutically, it is literally commoditized, right? But these guys have taken a point of view about the world that we're going to reduce, we're going to kill plastic and murder your thirst at the same time. And the way in which they're going to do that, that point of view is manifested by being irreverent, right? By taking the piss out of things, right? And therefore, people who drink liquid death aren't like, the water just tastes so much better. Is that I drink liquid death to about who I am, right? You know, like there are the best audio headphones you can buy on the market as a regular consumer from Best Buy is Bose, right? We can say demonstrably, Bose are the best headphones, right? However, Beats by Dre's been kicking Bose's tail for years. Here's an inferior product, demonstrably, right? No shade, demonstrably inferior product that outperforms a superior product. Why is that? Because when I put Beats on my ear, when I wear them around my neck, it says them about who I am. They are identity marks, not because of the value proposition of the product, but what the product means through my cultural lenses. So my, my parents aren't like, I'm getting some Beats by Dre headphones because it doesn't mean that to them. But based on your cultural subscription, this brand means something and therefore we pay a premium for it, right? Would you pay $300 for a Supreme t-shirt? Maybe, like, but someone who's not of that culture, of that collective of people who share the same conventions and expectation goes, it's not worth it to them because it's just a t-shirt. You go, no, 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 no. You don't understand what that iconography means. And meaning is culturally mediated, right? So it's not because of what it is, it's because of who we are. Do you remember the old, I still use it to this day, people make fun of me, but the old brand wheel. Oh yeah. And one of the, I think, six things in the brand wheel um, there was like a, I call it like above the line, below the line, like all the visual assets and kind of things you think about are below and then, or no, on the top. And then the below is, and one of them was self-expressive benefits. So when you order a Absolute Vodka or a Tito's, like that says something about you, you drive a Mercedes and the self-expressive benefits I've always seen in these little branding exercises I used to do all the damn time was the most powerful, right? That's kind of what you're talking about. That's right. Ivan Ross refers to this as identity congruence theory. He says that we buy brands and branded products that are aligned with, fortifies, or supports the concept we have of ourselves. That is, the more conspicuous the consumption is, that is the more you can see it, the more important it is aligned to our identity, who we are, who we want to be, and how we want to be seen. Therefore, at its core, then what the brand means has to be aligned with how I want to be seen or how I want to mean in the minds of people. Where are people messing this up? I mean, like I look at influencer marketing and what you're talking about is I think one of the reasons why influencer marketing is so powerful and now influencers you know, even have their own brands. Like if you look at Jake Paul and you know others and V and I mean, we go down the list. 
Are people reaching out, you know, beyond actually what they are? Are there deep values of the brand not truly communicated well or defined? Like where are people getting it wrong in this space right now? I think there are a few things. I think one, it's there is an incongruence in meaning. And that is the brand wants to mean something, but doesn't mean that in the minds of people. And brands think, no, we control meaning, but we do not. We don't control meaning. We signal meaning. But meaning is in the mind of the interpreter, right? We can go out and say, hey, you know, sketches are cool now because Snoop wears them. And, and the public goes, no, sketches. It is not. <laughs> it's like the brand is trying to signal one thing, but meaning is made in the minds of people. So brands have to understand that we don't control meaning people do. We signal meaning in hopes that we find congruence. The other side to this is that marketers don't know people very well. We actually really suck at understanding people because we put them in boxes that make it easy for us to, to categorize them, but they don't accurately describe who people truly are. And as a result, we end up with these trite sort of expressions of folks that never really land the plane on who they truly are. Call them age, race, gender, household income, generationalism, right? you know, millennials, Gen Zs. We act like they're all the same, but they're not. They're just not, right? It's like saying all women love to shop. No, they don't. It's not true. I teach at a university, so I hear, you know, like, you know, some college girls say, all men are dogs. No, your boyfriend's a dog. It's a different. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not all. Exactly. I love what you're saying because brands have human-like behavior and humans are humans. And I almost feel like the brands that do it well have such a deep, understanding of kind of who they are and who they're not. They're like a wise, you know, old philosopher, right? And they kind of are comfortable with kind of where they are. And there's other people that like just haven't kind of found themselves yet. And you see a lot of humans like this. I've gone through this as I've kind of tried to grow up, you know, and I, you see others that like just aren't quite sure like, hey, who am I? And it almost feels like to me the brands that like just kind of accept who they are, they land that cultural relevance and meaning with a lot more confidence. And is that the most attractive trait in human beings? People who are just comfortable in their own skin? A hundred percent. People gravitate to them because we all want that kind of freedom to just be ourselves, right? Absolutely. The Shakespeare quote, to thine self be true. Like when people find that truth, man, it is free. It's freeing. You feel so much freedom. You go, man, I wish I had that, right? So when we see brands operate in ways that are just so them, we go, dude, of course they'll do it. Of course they'll do it that way. Of course Liquid Death would do it that way. Of course. Of course Nike would do it that way. Of course. You mentioned McDonald's. You know, five years ago, McDonald's was trying to pacify everyone, trying to please everyone because in McDonald's mind, they serve everyone. But when McDonald's said, you know what, we're going to stop trying and we're just going to start being ourselves. And McDonald's business is through the roof right now. No new products, by the way, like very few new products. They've all just been culturally framed through this idea of we know who we are. And because we know who we are, we know who we're targeting. And McDonald's is a great example. Here's the deal. We've got to get back into the next quick episode because we're going to be short on time. So we're going to tease everybody because I know people are going to want to come back. And I want to finish this conversation, especially about McDonald's. I want to get into the MLB rebrand that I know you guys were a part of at Wyden, uh, which I think was insane. I've seen a presentation on that work as well. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to end right now. We're going to tease everybody because we're going to bring you right back. We're going to finish this conversation on McDonald's because I have a question about that because I think on the surface, it almost looked like 
you know, knowing McDonald's and they were getting hammered by Burger King when I think it was Francisco was over at Burger King CMO, who everyone loved, and they were kind of taking shots at McDonald's. And then they had this whole rebirth. And it almost looks like other people in that category can just, oh, I'm going to hire just Travis Scott. And we're going to do these value menus. But it's so much deeper than that. And I think it really goes to what we were talking about earlier. So here's the deal. We're going to end real quick here. We're going to bring Marcus Collins back. And he's got a new book coming out. So we want to hear the name of that book. Finding Cultural Relevancy, I think, is amazing. So uh, we want to dive into that. And we're also going to talk about the Major League Baseball rebrand. If you can't wait till the next episode and you want to learn more about Marcus, his Twitter handle is M-A-R-C-T-O-T-H-E-C. Or visit his company website, WK.com. All of our show notes will be at rebrandpod.com. So if you want to take some notes, I know there are a couple one-liners in there that are just fascinating that Marcus gave us some gold. So go there, find it. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, you know, all the stuff just at Scott Harkey or at rebrandpod. Again, we're building a subscriber community. Again, what Marcus said is we can't build, we just facilitate. So just appreciate everyone who listens to this podcast. Hopefully we're bringing you guys the insights you need in our daily job. So that's it for today. But remember, it's never too late to rebuild, reboot, or rebrand. 